Okay, well, while it is not a topic of today's podcast, this episode does, as Ira Glass says, acknowledge the existence of sex. So, if you're listening with children, you might just want to skip to the two-minute mark. After that, all ages are welcome. Another quick piece of business before we get started here, you can subscribe to Writing Questions on iTunes and on the podcast app for Android called Stitcher. Just search for Writing Questions, and as soon as I make a new episode, it'll pop onto your phone. Also, I'd love to hear from you. Um, If you have any comments, suggestions, or stories you'd like to tell, stick around to the end. Uh, I'll give you my contact information. Uh, I remember at one point in the project... uh, I swear I heard a woman in the backyard of her house. I didn't see anything, but I swear she was having sex either with herself or with someone. I heard, I heard sounds of pleasure. Um, and I wrote about it in my field notes and I'm telling you that bit because even now, uh, I'll catch myself every once in a while walking by that same part of the neighborhood and thinking, that's the house where the woman I think was having sex outside that one day, you know? Welcome to Writing Questions, Episode 5. I'm Stephen Hopkins, and that was Dr. Brian McNeely from the University of Kentucky. To find out why he heard what he heard, keep listening. Okay, friends, for today's episode, we're going to Lexington, Kentucky. More specifically, we're going near the campus of the University of Kentucky, where Dr. Brian McNeely is an assistant professor in the Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies Department. Um, Even more specifically, we're headed to a 1.7-mile stretch of street, sidewalk, houses, people, trees, and even more on the east side of campus that make up Dr. McNeely's daily commute from home to work. It's also the street where the sounds you're hearing right now happened. So this tiny bit of space in the middle of America was, for every day of February 2015, the site of one of Dr. McNeely's latest research projects, in which he was really trying to study and catalog what we call ambience. Now, you've probably heard of ambient music, like this you hear right now by SoundCloud user UK. It's music that tries to create an overall atmosphere without any one sound or instrument standing out. Just a lot of synthesized swells slowly washing over you. Maybe you've heard of ambient light, which is the sourceless light that bounces all around in our world and lights up everything evenly. Or maybe you've heard the French word that we sometimes use, ambiance, that refers to the overall feeling of a place or event. Um, Maybe even ambient sound. So like right now, I'm on the 13th floor of an 18th floor, 18 floor building. And I worried as this call started because uh, across from me, there is a massive construction crew getting ready to tear down our student center. So there's lots of ambient sounds related to that work, right? They're the sounds that surround us and that we mostly tune out, um, but that still kind of constitute our experience of everyday life. We hear, smell, touch, taste ambience all the time. Like there's probably an air conditioner or a fan going in the room that you're in right now, or maybe your maybe your chair is squeaking. Or did you know that you can always see your nose? It's always right there. 
um, or your socks and your shoes, they constrict against your feet and your shirt and your lips and your sweat. They all have an odor, but most of the time we ignore 99% of that. But that doesn't mean that it isn't there, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't make a difference. So what Dr. McNeely wanted to do was for an entire month was to listen to, see, hear, touch, taste, and experience everything he could during his walk to and from work every day. He wanted to attune all of his senses to every possible thing he could. As a researcher, he was going to turn his body into a scientific instrument of discovery. A lot of times this kind of work is called autoethnography. If we're attuning to ambience, or if we're attuning to anything, our antenna are up, right? Our ability to, for example, pick the sounds that we hear in our environment out from the normal kind of patina that we just ignore or don't listen to or that is just white noise for us. If we pick those sounds out, we're attuning to them. We're thinking more um, deliberately about what that sound is, where it comes from, you know, what is responsible for producing it and why. So if these words ambience and attunement sound familiar to you, then you, like me and a lot of my colleagues, have read or heard of Thomas Rickert's book, Ambient Rhetoric. Um, which my friend Jordan and I actually talked about in episode negative one of this podcast. You can go back and listen to what we say about that. So in this book, Rickert drew from French social scientist Bruno Latour and German philosopher Martin Heidegger, among others, to try to explain how all of this ambience that surrounds us actually influences the ways we think, the way we act, and who we are. And this book was one of the main inspirations for Dr. McNeely's project. And it included a lot of really interesting ideas about how do non-discursive phenomena, that is, uh, you know, how, how do things other than words uh, and um, symbols affect us in our everyday lives? His book is, is uh, in a line of research over the last 10 years or so that has been investigating some really interesting questions, but questions that mostly live at the level of theory. And I'm really interested in, in how we do research. I'm interested in, in methodology and methods. Reading Rickert, uh, you know, I'm, I'm annotating as I'm reading and saying, all right, brilliant idea. How, do you, how would you actually do this? How, how would you study, uh, you know, smells and, and, and make a connection between smells and rhetoric? Like, how do we actually do it? In order to answer these questions, which would be an extremely complex task, Dr. McNeely had to simplify a few things. To study ambience, that is to study um, the sounds and smells and textures of everyday life and how they impact how we view the world, already involves many moving parts. So I wanted to keep the other moving parts from the methodological side to a minimum. So what he came up with then was a research protocol that boiled down to just a few simple rules. Number one. I'll walk to work every single day, rain or shine, snow, hail, sleet, doesn't matter. Number two. Uh, every day uh, I will immediately write field notes after um, I get to the office or after I get home. I wasn't just paying attention to the things I saw, but also the things that I felt and smelled and heard. Number three, he had to have a camera with him and had to take at least two pictures on every trip coming and going. He could also make videos or sound recordings as he saw fit. 
And number four, at the end of each week, he would write an analytic memo reflecting back on the notes he took, patterns he saw, ways he could change or improve, and predictions and speculations on what the work could mean. One reason that having a set research protocol, this set of rules that he followed, was so important was so his study could be replicated by anybody else willing to do the same thing. Uh, I can share it with anybody who's interested and they can do the same thing or they can build on it and change the protocol to do a similar project. So then once he had a plan, he had to decide on what exactly to look at. I ended up choosing my commute, I think, because it made the most sense to me. It was something I was going to have to do anyway. Why don't I attune to, you know, what's going on in the morning, what's going on in the evening, you know, how much this this little walk to work and home every day shapes my experience of, of what it means to live here in Lexington, of what it means to be a professor at a university, of what it means to, um, you know, live in this particular neighborhood, etc. And so he did it. Every single day in February, he collected data on everything he saw, smelled, heard, touched, experienced. Um, except during one busy afternoon, he forgot to take pictures. So in the end, after all those trips to and from work, keeping all his senses as open as possible, Dr. McNeely had amassed 56 field note entries and five analytic memos totaling 34,215 words. Now that's about 135 pages of notes. He took 412 photographs, 19 short video clips, and did 14 audio recordings. When I heard about Dr. McNeely's work, I was inspired. I wanted to do this exact same thing. I was super excited about it, but talking with colleagues, I found out that not everyone thinks the way that I do. When I told my uh, a friend of mine about your project, he said, you know, that's exactly the kind of hippy-dippy stuff that academics get made fun of for all the time. Sure, yeah. So, and, so you had... I'm, aware, I'm, I'm like aware of that, that, uh, that, that people will... Uh, there will be people who will think this project was silly and a waste of time. And they may be right. It might not work for them at all, but it was fun for me. <laughs> I, I recognize that not everyone is going to be as fascinated as I am about these things, right? I get that. So a couple of colleagues would see me. So I was shooting at night quite a bit. And so a few times, like I saw Jim Rodolfo on the, on the elevator one day and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's actually, you know, field work for this project I'm working on. I was like, Oh, what, tell me about the project. And I'm just like, it's a secret project. You know? <laughs> like, I don't, don't want to say anything about this project for, for, for several reasons. Like for one, where I publish a lot is in professional and technical communication. And um, we're not seeing this kind of scholarship in, in that, Subdiscipline, uh, very often, if ever, and even in the broader discipline of rhetoric and writing, autoethnography in particular, as a as a methodology, is still not something that that a lot of people are uh, comfortable with. Two, it, it's a weird project. I mean, uh, you know, I'm basically studying my commute. I'm not an urban planner. I'm not a sociologist. So, you know, what am I so trying to explain that to people at that point in time while I was doing field work? I just kind of said, no, it's a secret project. So I asked him where this fear or trepidation was coming from that caused him to feel like he had to hide what he was doing. I mean, the trepidation just comes from me being, you know, pragmatic. There's, you know, ac academia is not uh, 
I don't, I don't want to get too far into this, but you know, uh, my colleague Jeff Rice was actually talking a little bit about this in the podcast you did at Four Cs. Okay, that's episode two. Questions about writing? Go check it out. There's this kind of, I don't know, mercenary side to academe almost that doesn't value a whole lot of creativity. In fact, I was reading one of my favorite scholars, Kathleen Stewart, who's an anthropologist at the University of Texas. And she said something about academe wanting to see projects that are 95% in line with what's already been produced and 5% new ideas. But in the face of this trepidation, Dr. McNeely persevered, even when it was difficult. It was challenging at times. Um, you know, I'd get get home and the kids have an activity or something like that. And I and I'm telling my wife, no, just hold, give me 20 minutes so that I can write down the field notes for all of the things that I heard and saw and smelled on my walk home tonight. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't like a throwaway project where Brian just goes and looks at his neighborhood. Like I was pretty intent on, on uh, following the protocol and producing something. And so by the end, uh, I was happy with, with what I had produced. So now I want you to hear about his findings. Um, I'll be playing in the background some of the clips that Dr. McNeely collected while he explains to us some of the things that he found. Early on, the, the approach was, was uh, I think, uh, exuberant, maybe, is a good way to say it, right? Like, I, I, would, uh, I would walk for 15 feet and pull out my phone and my note-taking app and write down, like, I heard this and this and this and this and this, like all these things that I couldn't capture other than to write them down. Doing a project like this, you become aware of, of these nuances that... Yes, you're collecting a lot, but you're also only getting at a fraction of what's really, really there. As much stuff as I have and that I've written down in field notes and that I've already photographed, it's nothing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what's actually here. And so I didn't get bored with the project. I didn't think, oh, well, this was stupid. Uh, I've seen everything there is to see. Why am I still doing this? This is definitely not going to be a project that's going to go anywhere. Instead, it kept, it remained interesting. And, you know, I saw things like the light change and the time change and different weather patterns and um, different effects on my body and, and uh, uh, new sounds, new, new forms of light that caught my eye. It, it remained interesting even through this, this uh, intensive month of field work where I'm doing field notes both morning and night. Okay, I asked Dr. McNeely to read me some of the notes that he wrote. Um, So he recorded some on his phone. Now, hopefully as I play these clips, you'll get a glimpse of the reason why I was so excited to have him on the show. Keep in mind, these are scientific scholarly field notes, just observations of the ambient environment of the street. But to me, they sound like poetry. When you start to document them, you realize that in this little context, this little walk, The ambient sounds are like ocean waves, sometimes deafening and powerful, sometimes just white noise. Footfalls of someone running, a bike freewheel, sniffs, dogs whining as they strain at their leashes, a stray yell, maybe from inside a house somewhere. A woman on Beaumont opens her screen door a few inches and calmly coos, Nigel. 
Nigel. Nigel Kitty. Nigel. I pass right in front of her house, worried that I'll spook Nigel and keep him from making it home momentarily. Each of these sounds and events shaped the way Dr. McNeely experienced his commute each day because all of the things, humans and non-humans alike, and whether they meant to or not, all had a rhetorical power to influence him and his feelings and perceptions. And so thinking that way about maybe these small agencies that surround us, uh, an agency just defining terms, that's the capacity to act uh, and interact, right? And so there's these small agencies that maybe surround us that we're uh, not normally attentive to. Uh, And they're also maybe indifferent to uh, our plans, designs, and intentions. So there's two specific examples that we talked about. First, he noticed that there's this slowly moving but constant battle among the trees, the sidewalks, and the people that cared for and used the sidewalks. The trees' roots, they overlap the sidewalks and people paint over them or they use machines to cut them off. Or the tree roots push the curbs away from the sidewalks and people re-pour the concrete over the roots. But there's this constant battle of two different uh, two different forces, both with agency and both kind of not uh, really caring about the other. So in the second example then, an ice storm caused a tree branch to collapse and, and Dr. McNeely, he realized that that event would forever shape the way that he felt about that space. Here, he reads again from his notes. When I walked past the intersection where the ice covered tree broke and collapsed, At some level, I will be haunted by the specter of that violence. My attunement to that momentary intensity will linger, will become a part of my sensory experience, part of my sense of place. A story so far for me and others, human and non-human. Now the importance of this observation struck me as we were talking. That's what's so crazy about this, is like, not only is it super complicated just to like, look out there and see what there is. But then there's also the added layers of all the history of that place and then every experience you've ever had with that or with similar things and they're all compiled on top of each other. So it's complicated in the present, but it's also ex- you know, exponentially complicated by the past as well. Yeah. It's one thing to read rhetorical theory and then try and explore it methodologically you know, that's what we talked about earlier. But once we get past that basic argument, well, then what? Uh, and so in talking about that tree and this, this really bad ice storm and some of the effects of the ice storm, I'm trying to get at why some of this, um, this stuff matters, why the, how the ambient environment shapes us and our understanding of place. Okay, so to wrap up here then, I just want to play this last clip from Dr. McNeely about what doing his research has meant for him. Um, I still have uh, the more kind of straightforward, traditional forms of research that I do and and that um, allow me to keep my job. and, And I like that research too. It's not like I'm doing it and I hate it, right? I do it. I only research things that I'm interested in, but I can do things differently with the kind of project that you and I have been talking about today. I can, um, I can, I can be the most me in these kinds of projects 
when I have the freedom and, and ability to uh, write in a, in a little bit different way or to explore things in a different way. These projects have made me more happy than any of the other projects that I've done in the last six or seven years because I get to take my training and I get to go in, in very different directions that um, are non-traditional, that are maybe a little bit weird to some people, but that I still think add value to the field, that contribute to the field, that bring different kinds of knowledge to the field. If you'd like to learn more, you can visit Dr. McNeely's website at brianjmcneely.com. So that's Brian with an I and McNeely, M-C-N-E-L-Y. Go there and you can see his beautiful photography, including some of the photos that he made during this project. So let him know you heard the podcast and tell him what you thought on Twitter at bmcneely or by email at brian.mcneely at uky.edu. Feel free to contact me with any ideas you have about writing, any projects you're working on, any stories you want to tell. Uh, My email is stephenwhopkins at gmail.com or on Twitter at seemylittlenee. Music for this episode comes from twinmusichome.org and incompetech.com. This has been Writing Questions, where we explore the role of writing in our lives and cultures. We'll see you next time.